It's been a crazy couple of years, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> lots of things have been going on, lots of surprises, but this week the unthinkable happened. Something that we just didn't see coming. Tom Brady retired. Uh, people said it couldn't happen. It'd been, you know, 22 years in the NFL, countless records of every variety, seven Super Bowl victories, five Super Bowl MVPs. And I must admit that all along the way, I didn't really care for Tom Brady until he went to Tampa Bay. And then I thought, all right, let's start rooting for this old guy. Uh, and so it was enjoyable to see him and all his victories over the years and to appreciate begrudgingly just like what a great athlete and competitor he is. But it's interesting as I kind of thought about it this week, I can, I can appreciate what he's done, but all his victories, all his accomplishments have nothing to do with me. <laughs> There, I have no similar victories in my life compared to what he has and all these accolades and the riches and all of those things. And to be quite honest, as we jump into Psalm 18, we can kind of feel like that. Because Psalm 18 is this victory that David has, and we may be in a place in life where we don't really feel like we're in the midst of a victory. We don't feel like we're in that place of great deliverance. We don't feel like, oh, I see the Lord work. So we may be in a place today where we're in the right in the middle of the trial. We're in the valley of the shadow of death. We're in a situation where I appreciate what's going on with you, David, but what does it have to do with me? And so it's important for us as we come to Psalm 18 to maybe take it a little bit differently because it is challenging to try to relate to David's deliverance if we don't feel like we're in that place of deliverance right now. But what I do want to help you to see and help me to see in the midst of whatever situation we're in, that our victory is coming. That it's more than just something that we sing about in a song or that we say that we believe. The reality is, for us as born-again believers, our victory is coming. The, the day is coming when we're going to, in a sense, retire from this world and we'll there go to be with the Lord and we'll receive crowns and glory and we'll be face-to-face -face with the Lord and all of those wonderful things. So the things that we read about here in Psalm 18 are coming for us. Okay, it's going to be our story one day, but also there's another little angle to help us to see Psalm 18 and get something from it is this, that a lot of Psalm 18 seems to be prophetic. A lot of Psalm 18 seems to have to do with actually the Lord Jesus Christ and the victories that he will receive or that he has wrought. And so what's interesting about that is that ties back to us in another way because we're in Christ. And so the victories that Christ has won, he's won for himself, but also he's won for us because he's accepted us into himself and he's going to share those riches of that victory with us. So, a little, so interesting things to think about, to remind ourselves in the midst of whatever trial, difficulty, storm we're going through, our victory is assured because Christ has overcome the world. And since we're in Christ, that victory is sure. Now, as we think about that, I want to give you a few interesting facts about Psalm 18, or really just a couple of interesting facts. Number one is, this is the fourth longest psalm. This is the fourth longest psalm in all of the psalms, and so that's kind of intriguing to think about. So it's 50 verses that we'll make our way through this morning. And then also, not only is it the fourth longest, but it actually has the second longest title. <laughs> and so as we look at that, let's jump into and read this title David says to the chief musician, 
a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, <laughs> that's a long title. There's a lot going on there, but it really sets the scene for us. Like many of the Psalms we're told here that David spoke this to the Lord or wrote this to the Lord, that it's directed toward the Lord. That's kind of common in the Psalms. But what's the occasion? Well, notice it's on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So it's intriguing that David is receiving deliverance from his enemies, but and he's also receiving deliverance from Saul. But notice he doesn't count Saul as one of his enemies. It's interesting. That Saul was the anointed of the Lord. Saul was, you know, out to get David and caused all kinds of turmoil and difficulty in David's life. And yet David puts him out separate from the enemies. And I just think that's an interesting thing to consider from the heart of David. Now, as we jump into this and as we kind of rejoice with David in the victory that he received, the deliverance he received from the Lord, we don't want to overlook this fact that David was in this difficult situation for at least 15 years. Now, depending on how kind of the time is reckoned and kind of like trying to put all the pieces together, it was somewhere between 15 to 20 years between the time David was anointed and then he finally became king. And most of that time, David is on the outs with Saul. Saul's persecuting him and and setting up people against him. And and David is, is in a difficult situation. And so it's important for us to understand that we may go through things in our life, difficult seasons, and the season may be very long. It may be something that maybe we struggle with our entire life, but we have to remind ourselves that for the believer, no suffering is permanent, that no suffering is forever. The day of deliverance is coming. So David's day of deliverance had come. He was delivered from his enemies and from Saul. And I want to kind of zone in on that for just one more second, because again, the day is coming for us that we're going to be delivered from our enemies. The day is coming for us that whatever we find ourselves in, that our, we are going to be delivered from our enemies. One of my favorite verses is in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. I want to set the scene for you. We've had the 10 plagues. The children of Israel are fleeing from the Egyptians. They're there at the Red Sea and they're freaking out. Because they're freaking out because here come the, the army of Pharaoh with all the chariots and what are we going to do? And I love this line, Exodus 14, 14 13. Moses says to the people, he says, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. And read that again. As, as he's talking to the Israelites, he says, look, look over there, look at the Egyptians and realize that the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The day is coming when you will see your enemies no more forever. The day is coming when your enemies, my enemies will be set aside Now, part of the enemy that will be set aside is our own fallen flesh. See, so much of the trouble that we experience in this life is we take our number one enemy with us wherever we go, ourselves. (laughs) Our sinful nature, we take with us. And so we, we have a hard time escaping that enemy because our fallen flesh teams up with the world and the devil to cause lots of problems for ourselves. So the day is good. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know if there are going to be mirrors in heaven. Okay, and you're going to see yourself in a mirror and you're going to say, something about me seems different. I don't have that fallen nature anymore. I don't have that enemy within. So the day is coming where we're going to be delivered from that enemy, even our fallen flesh. All right, let's jump into verse one here. David says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. Now, 
So David says, I'm going to love you. He says, I will love you. He's making a choice to love the Lord. But the word love here is not the normal word for love. It actually speaks of a compassionate, emotional love. It's not oftentimes that it's used for the Lord. But what David is saying here is he actually has this like this emotional love for the Lord, not merely a choice to serve him, but his heart is connected to the Lord because he sees the victory. You may be in a situation, a difficulty, a hardship right now where you're just kind of finding it. You're kind of muscling through your love for the Lord. Like I'm going to choose to love him. I'm going to choose to obey him. I'm just going to keep walking forward. But on the other side of that deliverance, you're going to see what God did through all that mess, all that difficulty, all that hardship. And then you're going to be able to say your heart's going to be tuned to him again. You're going to realize, okay, he was right the whole time. He was working all things together for the good. And your heart is going to be stirred up with him again. Now, in verse two here, David is going to really start stacking all of these, this imagery of the Lord together. He says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Now, you know, you may think, well, David's being paid by the word here. <laughs> you know, he's just like stacking it all up. But what is all this coming from? This is coming from the fact that David, in the midst of all the difficulty he'd experienced for 15 plus years, he'd experienced this. He experienced that God had protected him through that. So for you and I, it may take stepping out in faith to actually know God in this way. Because if we hide ourselves away from every difficulty... If we hide ourselves away in comfort and we never step out in obedience to the Lord, we're never going to recognize him as this. And it never says, well, the Lord is my couch. You know, you know the, the Lord is my couch and, and, the, and the Lord is my streaming Netflix, you know, and the Lord is my this or that. No, no. These are pictures of strength. These are pictures of protection. So rock here speaks of a crag or cliff, a secure hiding place. Fortress speaks of a strong castle. Deliverer speaks of a rescuer. You know, and that word deliverer or rescuer, it makes me think of someone who's been, you know, say in a hostage situation or they're behind enemy lines and a special forces team is sent in to rescue them, to deliver them out. The word strength there speaks of a rocky wall or cliff. Trust speaks of a place where you could flee for protection. Shield speaks of defense. Horn of my salvation speaks of an animal's horn that was strong to defend and to attack and strongholds a place of refuge. Now, why does David use so many of these imageries, of these images? Why over and over again? Well, first of all, it's because David had experienced each of these. Through David's trials and difficulties, he had experienced them, so they're fresh on his mind. But also, please understand this. God is infinite. God is infinite. And so it doesn't matter how many positive words you stack up. There's never enough to fully express who God is. So if David had spent the rest of his life stacking noun upon noun upon noun upon noun upon noun about the Lord, he could have come to the end of the Lord. Not enough words to describe him and his work. And so this is a beautiful picture of what's happened here. And, and David by no means was a perfect guy. We'll kind of talk about that a little bit later. But the fact is David had experienced these things with the Lord. But how did it happen? It happened through difficulty. It happened through hard times. It happened through persecution. It happened through trusting the Lord. It's impossible to experience these things in the Lord if you don't ever go through anything hard. And so David went through some hard things and got to experience this. Verse three, he says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved 
from my enemies. So God is is David's object of praise, right? He says he's worthy to be praised. It's important to to understand the word worthy, you know, or, or sorry, the word worship. I apologize. Worship stuff comes from this old English word worthship, like you're you're worthy. And so when we worship the Lord in song, what we're doing is we're saying you're worthy of praise, that you have worth, you have value. So that's what David is experiencing here, that David, God has worth. And so he should be praised. And he's also his savior. Notice he says, I shall be saved from my enemies. So David had been saved from his enemies in the past, and he was going to be saved from his enemies in the future. Now we look back at verses one through three, and we apply these to the Lord Jesus now. Kind of thinking about prophetically. This is the Lord Jesus obviously had this great love for the father. You know, he loved the Lord and, and he only did those things that pleased the Father. And then all of these things like rock and deliver and fortress and strength, we think about how the Lord Jesus was protected throughout his ministry. You know that he had many enemies who came against him, but what happens, we read in the scriptures, it was not yet his hour. His hour had not yet come. So he was protected from that and he called upon the Lord and the Lord would save him from his enemies. So it's interesting to even go back later and read Psalm 18, kind of thinking about how does this apply to the Lord Jesus? Verses four and five, notice the pangs of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. And so David is real about this. So this is an important balance that we have or understanding or nuance that when you serve the Lord and when you follow the Lord and when you trust in the Lord, it doesn't mean that every day is too blessed to be stressed. (laughs) Those kind of things, maybe I'm just, I'm just a low-level Christian, uh, but those sort of sayings just kill me uh, because what I found, at least in my own Christian walk, it's a, it's a challenge at times. It's difficult. It's not like, oh, well, I'm just so walking, I'm walking on sunshine every day and it's all lemonade and lollipops with the Lord. That's, that's how it works. It's not how it is. If you serve the Lord, it's, you're going to have enemies against you. You're going to have tr- troubles. It's going to be difficult. And so David is right. He's, he's basically being, um, you know, authentic about this. He's being genuine. He's like, I, I just felt like I was going to die. I felt like I was drowning. The ungodliness around me threatened to overtake me. The sorrows of Sheol, and Sheol speaks of death or the grave. He says, you know, it surrounded me. And then the snares of death, a snare. If you've ever watched a show like Survivor Man or Man vs. Wild, they go out in there and they use these snares. What a snare is, it's, you know, this, this little string or wire that an animal goes into. And then when they pull it, it pulls them tight and they can't get away. And, and that's what David was feeling. He, feel, he felt trapped by death. He felt that he was ensnared by it. So he was feeling overcome at the hands of his enemies. And then we read in verse six, he says, in my distress, so in my feeling of fear of death, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him even to his ears. And so David, what does he do in the midst of his distress? He keeps calling out upon the Lord. And the Lord heard from his temple. Now, please understand, at this time, there was no temple in Jerusalem. In fact, it wouldn't be till David's son Solomon built the temple. So what is he calling? He's calling about God's temple in heaven. He said, from his temple in heaven, he heard. And again, a reminder, God hears. God hears your prayers. God listens. Okay. He doesn't mean that he's going to answer them in the timing that we want. 
It doesn't mean he's going to speak back in the way we want him to speak back, but the fact is he does hear. And so for David, his voice was heard there in heaven. Now, you can look at verses four through six, and it's interesting, prophetically, it looks a lot like the Lord Jesus on the cross. It looks like the Lord Jesus on the cross as, as you know, people are, are surrounding him and saying things against him. And we'll kind of get into that uh, in Psalm 22. Um, but then you, you think about Jesus taking the, the punishment for our sins, being poured out upon him, that, that righteous wrath was poured upon him. And so this, and Jesus there on the cross cried out to God. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so it looks like this imagery of Jesus on the cross here in verses four through six, something interesting to consider. Now verses seven through 12, the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. Okay, now... As we look at this image, imagery right here, there's obviously some figurative language here, okay? So there's a figurative language in the sense of, you know, God doesn't necessarily have feet, right? Some anthropomorphic language that he rode a cherub and flew, he flew upon the wings of the wind. And so there's some figurative language, but the question to ask ourselves is, well, how figurative is it? Is, is David just kind of being using poetic license or is he saying, Something happened of this nature, and this is how I'm describing it. And this question really is a philosophical question. Do we believe that the universe is closed or, in, or open? You know, a lot of people in this day and age believe that the universe is closed. It's a closed system. What that means is that it's kind of where the, the universe is like an aquarium. You know, there's nothing from the outside that can affect it. Just the aquarium got started and what happens inside happens inside. But Christians should believe in an open system. And what that means is the universe, the physical universe is open and God's able to interact in it. God's able to do the miraculous. God's able to come inside to this universe, if you will. And, and so it's interesting that verse nine, where it says he bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. This bowing the heavens, it, it really gives that image of God from outside the physical universe, kind of bending his way and coming into the physical universe to act. And so it's very, very interesting here. Now, I don't have all the answers for exactly what happened here, but verses seven through 12 really kind of say, do I believe that God intervenes in this world in a miraculous way? Or even as a believer, am I kind of a materialist? Am I just looking to kind of explain away things? Well, God couldn't do something like this. I mean, God couldn't, that's not kind of how he works. Maybe that's how he worked in the past, but that's not how he works now. It's interesting, there's an individual that I've been following for the last few years, who's moved from an atheist. It seems like he's moving toward Christianity. Very interesting fellow. And he said this in one of his speeches of recent. He says, I don't, I don't believe anymore that the universe is made of matter. He said, I believe it's made of what matters. That's a very interesting statement for him to say. And what he's saying is the, the universe is not just material, but there's, there's something more. That's not what it's all about. And, and so what, if, for we as believers, if we believe what the, God, what the God of the Bible says and who he is, he can do these sort of things. 
He can interact in a supernatural way. So David experienced, it seems, some sort of supernatural deliverance from Saul. Earthquakes and other kind of things happen. Uh, this imagery looks a lot like storms that came up to, to spare him. And if, if you kind of look through history, you start seeing this. Very famously, you can look at American history and see about how American forces were there in New York and they were going to be hemmed in by the British. But then all of a sudden, there's some supernatural things happen. There's some things happen in the weather system to allow them to escape, to fight another day. And you see these sort of things throughout history where God intervenes, uses the weather and other things to accomplish his purposes. Now, why am I making such a big deal of this? Because this gives us hope. If we believe in a God who doesn't intervene anymore in this way, who doesn't work in the material universe, but just tells us to be good little boys and good little girls and I'll see you in heaven one day. Well, then where's the hope? But if we have a God who's over all of these things, he's over COVID, (laughs) he's over governments, he's over all these things and he can move in the way in which he chooses when he wants to, then all of a sudden there's hope. So, so David was able to, to see these things, to experience these things. Now, how do verses 7 through 12, you know, how does that tie to the Lord Jesus? Well, one way we could see it trying to the Lord Jesus is kind of the supernatural manifestations that took place while he was on the cross. You know, there was the darkness that happened and there was earthquakes and all of these sort of things. So there could be some kind of tie-in to that as well. All right, let's move on to verses 13 through 15. It says, The Lord thundered from heaven, the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Okay, some similar things here. Some more imagery of hailstones and coals of fire and lightnings and all of these things where David received supernatural deliverance through God intervening in that way. Now, for us, we don't have it recorded, you know, like in in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. We don't have these things recorded, but just because it's not recorded there doesn't mean it didn't happen. I mean, think if we had a book that recorded everything that God has done in human history. There's, there's no way to carry that book around. <laughs> and, and so there has to be an editing of sorts to only kind of bring out certain things. Now, as we look at this too, it's, it's very kind of interesting to, to consider this imagery of verses 13 through 15 in light of the Exodus. So you think about how God moved in the Exodus. And you think about the plagues that he sent and you think about him parting the Red Sea and you think about all of those things. So I believe that, that David recognized, huh, things that he's doing in my life as he delivered me from Saul, are very similar to things that he did in the Exodus. And so I think it's important for us to consider as we look through the scriptures is how has God done similar things to me? You know, what what has he done in my life? How has he delivered me? What supernatural things have taken place? And I think if we would scratch the surface of our lives and really consider, probably we'd see the miraculous more often. We'd see how he's delivered us at times that we didn't recognize it in the moment, but looking back, we can see that now. All right, verses 16 here. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. So again, David felt like he was drowning and so he was drawn out. And so if you maybe feel like you're drowning in a situation, you feel like you're overwhelmed, the waves are crashing over you, I I just wanted to let you know you're not alone in feeling that, okay? Because there can be a tendency 
uh, among believers and especially among kind of just the, the way we do life in, in the U.S. is, you know, if, if you're, you're a faithful Christian, it's never going to be difficult. It's, you're never going to feel bummed out. You're never going to be discouraged. If, if you could just do better, everything will feel fine. And that's just not the reality. The reality is if you are a soldier in a war and if you're a believer, you are a soldier in a war, you're going to be discouraged at times. You're going to get shot at. You're going to feel bummed out. You're going to have ups and downs. That's, that's part of the whole deal. If you are in a war, things are going to be hard. Verse 17, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. Now, when it comes to delivering things, we're spoiled now because we can order things and be delivered two days, someday, sometimes one day. We can have food delivered. We can have all these things. We can track the delivery. When I order a pizza, I can actually see on my computer screen, it shows a little image of the car as it's coming to my house to deliver my pizza. So we get so spoiled because we expect these deliveries to be on a certain time and we can track it all. But when it comes to God's delivering of us, he says, I'm, I'm not going to give you any tracking information. I'm not going to tell you how long it's going to. All he says is, I will deliver you. I'm not going to tell you the when. I'm not going to tell you the where. I'm not going to tell you the how. Just trust me that I'll deliver you when it's good. You know, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the father knows what you have need of before you ask him. He knows how to deliver us. And so the, the, the deliverance is coming for you as a believer. Please understand that. So he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, they were too, for they were too strong for me. That's important too. You are not strong enough to defeat your enemies in this world. It's too many of them. You and I are not strong enough. But, but sometimes that's kind of how things, and, and maybe things I've said from the pulpit have reinforced that. Of, it's, you, know, you go home and you're like, well, Steve just thinks that if I just read my Bible enough and pray enough and come to enough meetings, I'll be strong enough. You're not strong enough. Okay, I'm not strong enough. So I apologize for if, I, if I've made you feel that way or if I said those things. The fact of the matter is you and I cannot win against the forces against us. There are too many. We can't fight against these forces. We can't win against them because there are too many. But here's the deal. God can fight against them. God can deliver them. I love something Pastor Chuck used to say. He says, um, God and you make a majority. <laughs> I like that. Now, obviously, God on his own makes a majority, but I appreciate what Pastor Chuck was saying about the whole deal. And so for, for you and I, as long as we're like, well, I'm going to get it right, and if I, just, if I just work hard enough, and if I just pray enough, and if I read enough, and if I study enough, and if I'm nice enough, and I'm do this kind of, I'm going to beat these enemies. No, you and I cannot defeat the enemy. They're too strong for us, but God can defeat these enemies, and he will defeat them. God can deliver us. So the question is not how can we fix the things? How can we get it done? And it's like, how can we trust the Lord more? The Lord's got to be the one to do it. The Lord is the one to deliver. Verse 18 says, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. Okay. So it's hard for David. It's difficult for him. He's being confronted by his enemies. But what happens? The Lord is his support. The, one, the Lord's the one who props him up. The Lord's the one who keep, keeps him up. Paul said in the book of Romans, he says, you know, why do you challenge this guy as, you know, he's a servant of the Lord uh, and the Lord is able to make him stand. I like that. The Lord is able to make you stand. And it's interesting because the Lord can strike us down with something 
and we can actually stand as we lie down. We can stand as we're defeated. That, that what God's, God's supporting us, God's causing us to stand, spiritually speaking, doesn't mean physically being upright. It, it means that God is able to strengthen us to continue on and no matter what calamity comes against us. He is able to do that. We don't have that within ourselves. Verse 19, beautiful. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. I don't know if any of you guys have ever gone to, I know some of you in this room have, but gone to Ski Apache, you know, in Rio Dosa. And the, I, I, let me just say this. I don't enjoy the ride up there <laughs> or the ride down. If you've ever gone there, it's a very, very narrow place. It's very frightening, especially if it's icy. It's, it's nerve wracking going up that mountain. But once you come to the top of the mountain, it's a broad place. Once you get to the top, then there's a lot of enjoyment and there's broad runs to ski on and all those good things. And that's what David is saying. He's saying it was this this calamitous trying to get to the top. But once God brought me to the top, there was this broad place. There was this wide place. There's a kind of used in the scriptures, a a secure place or green pastures. And then it says um, here that he brought me to the broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. And we look at that and we say, well, great. I'm glad he delighted in you, David. But what does that do for me? Of course he delighted in you. you. You know, you're the shepherd king. You wrote the Psalms and you're anointed by God and you killed Goliath. Of course he did that for you, but what about me? And so it may be that we think God doesn't delight in us, but may I just say that God delights in you every bit as much as he delighted in David. Jesus said something very interesting about new covenant saints. He said about John the Baptist, he says, from those born of women, there's not a risen greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus puts John the Baptist at the top of all all the Old Testament people. Jesus puts John the Baptist above Moses, above Abraham, above everybody with that statement. But he says, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. And so for you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, born again by the Spirit, God has given you and me his Holy Spirit. So how could he not delight in us? It says, God has demonstrated his own love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So how could he not delight in us? So God delights in you. Now, you may not feel it in the moment because you say, well, if God delights in me, things would be better. Things would be easier. Things would be this. Things would be that. That's not how God measures delight. God delights in you because of who he is and what he's done for you. And he actually delights in you. And so he's using those difficulties, those hardships to conform you and conform me into the image of Christ so that he can delight in us even more. So it's an amazing thing that God delights in us. And so if you think that he doesn't, then I want you to go back once again, read your New Testament and see what it says about Christ, see what it says about you, and you'll see that he does delight in you. All right, verse 23, 24 And the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. For I have kept the way of the Lord, and I have not departed wickedly from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I I was also blameless before him. I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Okay. So we look at verses 20 through 24 and say, wow, you need to take a chill pill, David. Yeah, what's going on here, man? Getting a little high and mighty, a little big for your britches. David uses his imagery throughout the Psalms, but we always want to use it contextually. 
Okay, in the context, what is David talking about? He's talking about his relationship with Saul and then these unrighteous enemies against him. So in other words, when it comes to what his enemies were coming against him with, what Saul was coming against him with, David wasn't in the wrong. David was absolutely in the right. He had done nothing wrong against them. And we talked about this before, that on two occasions, David had the opportunity to kill Saul. And he chose not to kill Saul. That, that David had the opportunity to speak evil against Saul, to send guys against Saul, to spread a smear campaign. Didn't do any of those things. And so the fact of the matter is, when it comes to a situation with Saul, that David had done rightly. Now, what's interesting about verses 20 through 24 is you can relate that to the Lord Jesus Christ easily. Prophetically of the Lord Jesus Christ, as you think about the Lord Jesus, that he was in every way tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was absolutely sinless. So we could think about verses 20 through 24, see it in relation to prophetically about the Lord Jesus and about his sinlessness. Now, I forgot to mention also in verses 16 through 19, though, that you look at that and that could really be a reference to also Jesus and the cross, right? There on the cross and that, you know, he was killed, though there was those surrounding him, but then he was delivered, that he was resurrected from the grave. So again, interesting things for you to go back and consider on your own. Verse 25, he says, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. So David shifts gears here a little bit, kind of talks about how God works in people's lives. And this is very interesting. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. One thing to consider here is just because we're merciful doesn't mean we don't need mercy. Okay, so why would you treat the merciful with mercy? Uh, why would you treat uh, the, the merciful mercifully if they didn't need it? So the, the idea here is even if we're merciful people, we still need mercy that we still do things wrong. We still do things incorrectly. But this is a reminder of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so I'd encourage you kind of often to go back to the Sermon on the Mount, to read Matthew 5 through 7 and kind of remind yourself of these central tenets of Jesus's ministry. And one of them is he says, hey, judge not lest you be judged. For with the judgment you use, it will be measured back to you. What measure you use will be measured back to you. So that's what we have here. When we treat people mercifully, God uses the, the measurement of mercy toward us. That's just, that's a reality. That's the truth. Now, um, the, the, the guy that I was mentioning earlier uh, about the matter quote is a guy by the name of Jordan Peterson and is a very interesting guy to, to consider and to kind of see how the Lord's working in his life. Uh, but one of the things that he talks about, he really hesitates to call himself a believer. And the reason why he says this, he says, because to be a believer would actually be to obey all the things in scripture. Like to be a believer would have to say, I'm actually doing all those things. That's what it means to believe, right? If we believe something, that means we're actually doing it. And so Jesus tells us, hey, just be merciful to people. Be merciful. And what's gonna happen is you will receive mercy. So maybe you and I are in that place where we feel like we're being judged all the time and we just feel like we're not being treated right. Maybe if we took a look in the mirror, we're not being merciful to people. We're, we're, we're quick to, to place blame. We're quick to say, what's your fault? Well, I, I would be a better person if you would fix your act, if you would do things. Instead of treating people mercifully, and then if we would, maybe we'd experience more mercy from the Lord as well. Now, um, again, one last thing about this mercy here before we move on is obviously it relates to this cancel culture that we have. You know, this culture, and if you've been keeping up, there's a lot going on these days, but if you, if you get sideways of the powers that be, they try to find a way to silence you. <laughs> 
to get you off the internet, to stop no one talking about you. But they, what those people don't understand is that whenever they're trying to cancel people, then the same judgment's going to be used against them. That this high standard that they call other people to and like, well, there's no forgiveness going after you then that's going to be used against them. And that's just the truth. That's the reality of the situation. Now, so um, again, if we want God to treat us mercifully, then we should treat others mercifully as well. All right, next thing he says, with a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. And uh, with a pure, you will show yourself pure. So I think this blameless and this pure, they kind of tie together, right? Blameless does not mean sinless. But it really speaks about how there's nothing glaring to hold on to. There's not this unrepentant sin that a person's carrying out with a pure, you'll show yourself pure. I really think about these two in relation to the beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. I think that's what it is. That when we seek in God's power by his spirit to lead lives that are blameless, in other words, when we're wrong, we confess that, ask him to forgive us. We, we seek to live lives of purity, then what's going to happen is we're going to see how blameless God is. We're going to see how pure God is. We will see him better. It's interesting how you and I actually have to train ourselves to see God. Like that we actually have to put ourselves in a position to actually to seek after him, to get to know him. And then what's happened as we do, we begin to see his moving in lives. But you, you and I know what it's like to begin to ignore God and to kind of be about ourselves and to turn inward. And then what happens is we don't really see him working anymore. We're like, how come God's not working anymore? How come God's not speaking anymore? How come God's not moving anymore? Well, I would argue he's probably still speaking, still working, still moving, but we've deadened ourselves. And so what's happened is, is we say, Lord, I wanna live a blameless life. I wanna live a pure life. Then we're gonna be able to see God as blameless. We're gonna be able to see God as pure. Now, continues on. He says, with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. It's interesting. Now, commentators have a hard time with this. Oh, I can't believe this. What is God? He's showing himself shrewd. What is he doing to these people? Here's the thing. God's not naive. Okay? You know, naive people, they, they get conned all the time. Naive people, you know, they, they believe that, oh, this thing's going to, this thing, and oh man, I sent this text and I paid my AT&T bill. Let me just click on this link and see what happens. They, they, get, they get deceived, right? God, you can't deceive God. So if, if a person wants to live a devious lifestyle, if a person wants to be deceitful and a liar and a cheat, then God says, all right, you want to be treated that way? I, I'm going to let you be trapped by those things. Uh, and so I, I think a, a great example of this, that dis, the devious won't get away with their deceit, is how God used Laban to straighten out Jacob. Remember Jacob? Jacob was a guy who was, was a trickster, deceiver, heel catcher. So God allows him to have a father-in-law who's even worse than he is. <laughs> and it allows him to kind of work on that. So you can read about that in the book of Genesis if you've forgotten that story but, but God is not going to let devious people to get away with it. He's going to show themself, himself shrewd. He's going to allow their, their twistedness to kind of come back on them and to crash down upon them. Verse 27, he says, For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. This is a fundamental principle of Scripture that's, that's repeated again and again, and I would encourage you to kind of use it over and over again in your own mind. It's simply this. God resists the proud, but it gives grace to the humble. That, that's what this is. We find this in James, we find this in 1 Peter, and we find the, the principle of it throughout the scriptures that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Okay, 
if we can't even defeat the enemies around us, how in the world can we defeat God? So we don't need him resisting us. <laughs> we don't need him pushing against us. So he said, I want, I want grace. How can I receive God's grace? Just be humble. Just be humble. Recognize who you are in God's sight. Just be obedient to him. Obey him, even though it doesn't seem to make sense to do the things he calls you to do and realize that he's gonna give you grace. So God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And these verses, verses 25 through 27, again, they tie to the Lord Jesus and really, I believe, the Sermon on the Mount. So, you know, again, take some time this week. I'd encourage you to read back through the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 28, for you will light my lamp. The Lord, my God, will enlighten my darkness. This is uh, reminiscent of Psalm 119, verses 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And, and just this, this idea, this truth, that God and his word gives light to us. In the midst of a darkened world, he shows us the way to go. And you know what that's like. You know what it's like to walk in an unfamiliar room in the dark and to hurt yourself. (laughs) And you know what it is to turn on the lights. This world is an unfamiliar room, right? This world is full of things where people move the furniture all the time. Things are different. So we need the light of God's word to continue to look around and say, well, now that the furniture's moved over here, this government's doing this, there's no, what do I do? We need the light of God's word to enlighten us. Verse 29, I love this. David is feeling his oats here. He says, for by you, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. So, so David says, with your power, Lord, I can run right through these troops gathered against me. I can leap over the wall of a fortified city. Now, I, David may be using some hyperbole here, but he's basically saying, God, I can do what you've called me to do. God called David to be a soldier, to be a king. David was a warrior. That's what he was called to do. So for you and I, it's to look and say, what has God called me to do? What, what is it that God's gifted me to do, given me a desire to do? And then do I believe that God's given me the power to do that thing? It, it does, is God's calling, God's enabling? I believe that. So I'd encourage you to kind of say, well, what does God call me to do here on planet Earth? And let me ask him for the power to do that thing. Verse 30, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. And so there's three beautiful things here. Number one, that God's way is perfect. In other words, God's way is always the right way. God's way is always the right way. And we look at it and and we say, well, but what about an asterisk? And what about this? And what about this circumstance? And what about this hypothetical? And and God just says, my way is the best way. My way is the perfect way. His way is perfect. Number two, we see here, the word of the Lord is proven. And that word proven, it means refined or tested. In other words, when you test something and you find that it passes the test, you know, like if you were to test the metal to see if it's strong enough for a certain uh, project and you, you test it and yes, it's proven. That's what he's saying. That the word of the Lord is proven, that it's tested, it's sure. How can we find that out for ourselves? By obeying it. As we obey the word of the Lord, then we can say, yes, the word of the Lord is proven. The word of the Lord is true. And thirdly and finally, we see he is a shield to all who trust in him, that the Lord defends those who trust in him. The Lord defends those who trust in him. He's he's going to be there with you. He's going to protect you. Now, again, it may not feel like he's protecting you. Okay, it may not feel like, you know, he's, he's, he's shielding you. But the fact of the matter is he is. 
Okay, he, he is, and for his sovereign purposes, um, he's allowing what he's allowing in your life, but also understand that he's shielding you from hell. <laughs> he's shielding you from judgment, and he's gonna take you home to be with him. Verse 31, he says, for who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? So David's saying there's no other God. Again, this is common throughout the scriptures. There's only one God. There's only one game in town, and that's the triune God of the Bible. Nobody else. Verses 32 through 34. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He sets me on high places. He teaches my hands to make war that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. And so wonderful imagery here. Is, you know, David, God gives David strength. He makes him to be able to kind of move through difficult places like a deer does, how a deer can kind of walk through on a, on a kind of on a mountain slope, these different areas without stumbling. He says that's what it is. And then God makes him strong for war. This idea of this uh, bow of bronze is like a, a wooden bow that's reinforced with bronze. And it's really hard to pull back. Um, but he says, God can give me the ability to do that. And so you look at that and you kind of apply verses 32 through 34 to the Lord Jesus there as well. You know, that, that Jesus was someone who perfectly waited on the Father, perfectly did what the Father asked him to do, and had great strength um, to, to carry out God's mission for him. All right, verses 35 and 36. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarge my path under me, so my feet did not slip. This is very interesting here. David had these great victories over his enemies here, or, or well, actually in the next part, we'll talk about that. Um, but it's, again, similar themes. God held him up. God defended him. Um, God enlarged his path so that he did not slip, gave him a wide place to walk in. But what I want to focus on for just a second is verse 35. He says, your gentleness has made me great. Because we don't often think about that in terms of, of God's gentleness makes us great. But, but I, I would encourage you, I'd encourage me to look at our lives and see how gentle God has been with us. Like how many times have I been like Job and just like, all right, Lord, let's just get in the ring together. Let's just do this thing. Let's fight it out. And Lord in his gentleness has not punched me. <laughs> the Lord in his gentleness. And so it's the Lord's gentleness. He makes us great. He, and what does that mean is you think about how like a parent slowly brings along a child, trying to mature them, trying to help them, isn't overly rough with them. And that's what we see with the Lord, that the Lord gently brings us along as a loving parent. Talks about, um, related to the Exodus, you know, that how he, like as a father carries his son, so I carried you, Israel. That, that kind of beautiful imagery. Now, verses 37 through 42, he says, I pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. You have given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They cried out, but there was none to save. Even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I, then I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt in the streets. Now look at this. It's like David is speaking of these great victories he's had over his enemies, how he's defeated them in battle. God has, has given him the power to do that thing. And as we look at this, we say, okay, that doesn't really have much relation to me. 
right? I, I'm not going to necessarily be someone who's fighting these enemies and in that certain way. But I do think that there's a wonderful situation that you and I will be a part of that is a prophetic fulfillment of this. And so to think about that, to look at that for just a minute, would you turn to the end of your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19? Because I think what we have here in Psalm 18 ties prophetically to Revelation 19 and the second coming of Christ. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, to kind of catch you up contextually, we're at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. The church was raptured at the beginning of that. And so now it's time for the second coming of Christ. And coming with him are you and I. You and I, as born-again believers that have been raptured, we have our resurrected bodies, we're going to come back with the Lord Jesus as the Lord Jesus defeats his enemies before he establishes his millennial kingdom. So verse 11 says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God and the armies in heaven. And that's you and me uh, in clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress, the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And here's the shocking verse, verse 16. Jesus has a tattoo and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and our armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on a horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Radical scene. Radical scene. And so what we have here is the ultimate, so David had kind of his victory over his enemies and that was kind of just like a, a, you know, a much smaller thing. Here we have at the end, this fulfillment of that, of the ultimate victory of a king over his enemies, Jesus Christ defeating the armies of the Antichrist that are gathered together against him. Why is this important? Because if you know how the story ends, you can have confidence. This is how the story ends. People gather together against God and his anointed, and they've been doing so all throughout human history. But the fact of the matter is, this is how the story of humanity ends. That those against him will perish. They will be defeated. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. They can turn, right? If you can't beat them, join them. God's the ultimate version of that. You can't beat them, so join him. But you and I can have confidence that no matter how bad things get, no matter what happens to our individual lives, this is how it's going to be. Jesus will establish his thousand-year reign, and then at the end of that thousand years, there's going to be one last rebellion, then he's going to wrap that up, 
the Satan's going to be cast into the lake of fire. And then as you get into Revelation 21 and 22, then what's going to happen is you're going to have the new heaven, the new earth. So I'd encourage you in the midst of your own desperation and frustration and questioning about the future, go and read Revelation 21 and 22. It's, it's, it's the, the end. I, I would say it's the, the end of the beginning. Because what we're going to have is we're going to have a new heaven, a new earth throughout all eternity where there's nothing that corrupts. There's no more death. There's no more pain. There's no more crying. This is the story. This is our story. This is the story that God is writing. And Satan wants us to believe something different. He wants us to believe it's all going to turn out badly. No matter what you do, it's going to be junk. But that's not the truth of the scriptures. All right. With that said, let's turn back and get into the last part of Psalm 18. All right, verses 43 through 45. It says, you have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they shall obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. And so this speaks to the fact that David was going to um, rule over the neighboring Gentile nations. That He was going to be a boss over them. But of course, it speaks even more so to the Lord Jesus Christ reigning over the nations there in the millennial kingdom. That thousand year reign. Verses 46 through 48 says, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues me, peoples, subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. And so verses 46 through 48, it's more of deliverance. It's being lifted up. But for you and I, again, we can take verses 46 through 48 and, and, and say, that's gonna be me one day. One day, that's going to be me. I'm going to be able to say, yes, I've been delivered from all my enemies. I'm here with the Lord and nothing is going to affect me negatively ever, ever again. Now, verse 49, therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. Now, what's so interesting about verse 49 here is in Romans 15, 19, Paul applies this verse to the salvation of the Gentiles. In other words, it was always God's plan to save Gentiles. That God had made that clear through the scriptures. The, the, unfortunately, the, the nation of Israel, by and large, had neglected that fact. But the fact of the matter is God was always wanting to save Gentiles. He was always wanting to save people like you and me. And so that verse, verse 49, was a picture of that, about how the Lord was going to save Gentiles and sing praises among them. Verse 50 says, Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. So David experienced deliverance, and you and I will experience deliverance as well. Now, what's interesting and kind of one little more tidbit about this before we conclude is that this very same psalm with just minor changes, David also recited at the end of his, his kingship. Before he died, he recited this same psalm because speaking about how the Lord had worked in his life, even through his kingly ministry. And, and so uh, by way of conclusion, I just want to have you turn to one last place. And that last place is 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, in your New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4, because this psalm, Psalm 18, is really about deliverance and victory. 
uh, in the midst of whatever circumstances we might find ourselves to know that deliverance is coming, victory is coming. So I wanted to read something that Paul wrote about this kind of similar subject. And it's 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to look at verses 6 through 18. And then we'll, we'll close and, and have communion together. Paul wrote this. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, and Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Antichicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he, is all, he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against him. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.